Hear the word of God from Exodus 6, 1 through 13. Then the Lord told Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave his land. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. And I reaffirmed my covenant with them. Under its terms, I promised to give them the land of Canaan, where they were living as foreigners. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel, who are now slaves to the Egyptians, and I am well aware of my covenant with them. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord. When Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said, but they refused to listen anymore, they become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go back to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and tell him to let the people of Israel leave his country. But Lord, Moses objected, my own people won't listen to me anymore. How can I expect Pharaoh to listen? I'm such a clumsy speaker. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them orders for the Israelites and for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord commanded Moses and Aaron to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I love being able to continue in our sermon series together. I love that we're able to do that through technology. It's so much fun that we're able to do that. And I love that we have to continue our text. And this message from this text so often hits us where we are. We're in Exodus and mainly focusing on Exodus chapter 6 today. And let me set a little bit of context. Chapter 3, God calls Moses through the burning bush that's not actually burning. He reveals his name to Moses. God then tells Moses, go back to Egypt. Moses thinks this isn't a good idea. And in chapter 4, God shows Moses that he will be with them because Moses says, this is not a good idea. They're not going to listen to me, but God says, I'll be with you. So Moses and Aaron goes back to Egypt with a message a promise that God was going to set his people free. So they begin to preach first to the elders of Israel in chapter 4. And at the end of chapter 4, the elders received it with joy. They got pumped. They're like, okay, we've been in slavery. We're ready to go. Then they went to preach to Pharaoh. And instead of joy, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And things, instead of getting better for Israel, got worse and worse and worse. So by the end of chapter 5, both Pharaoh and the people of Israel have rejected both Aaron and Moses and the message. And in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5, we see Moses is deeply discouraged. He's crying out to God for an answer. And this is where we picked up in chapter 6. This is what we heard. 
And in chapter 6, what I love so much about this chapter, about this passage, is here we have Moses. I mean, it's Moses, the, the Ten Commandments guy, the, the water guy who did the water thing, the guy who set his people free. He's super discouraged. He's down. He's depressed. He tried to do the right thing, and it didn't lead to the results he wanted or expected. Moses did what God told him to do, and instead of it getting better, it got worse for his people. So in response to his despondency, in response to his depression, we have here chapter 6, God preaches the gospel to Moses. What? The gospel? I thought the gospel didn't happen until the New Testament. I mean, Mark 1.1 says this is the beginning of the gospel. So I'm confused. How could God be preaching the gospel to Moses here? There are some people who like to think the story of God and the gospel began in the New Testament. They like to ignore the Old Testament, act like the Old Testament doesn't exist. My people, I want you to hear me very well. I've said this over and over again. I'll keep on saying it. The gospel began in the Old Testament. The good news is that God keeps his promises. The good news is that God rescues. The good news is that God created us for relationship, and he himself made a way for it to happen. God is preaching the gospel to Moses because that is what Moses needs to hear, and so do we. Over and over and over again, we need to hear the good news of a God who created, of a God who loves, of a God who pursues, and a God who made a way to rescue us. Sometimes I think, I think we like to think of the gospel like, like a harbor from which we depart on the voyage of the Christian life. We think of it like the safe shore from which we set sail to explore deeper waters otherwhere, elsewhere. But that is the wrong idea of the gospel. The gospel is not a starting point for the Christian life, which you leave behind as you look for deeper truths or deeper understandings or you mature past the gospel. No, the gospel, a better metaphor is the gospel is like soil, rich and fertile. My wife decided during the quarantine that was a good time to garden. So this is the metaphor that you get. The gospel is rich, fertile soil that you are a seed. You're thrown, you're sown into the soil. And when you begin to live, you put down roots and you shoot into the soil. And you sink those roots and shoots deeper, deeper into the gospel. So that as you grow, you get more and more nourishment from the good news. You don't go past it. You don't grow out of it. You grow more deeply down into it. The good news about Jesus is a vital truth for you no matter how mature or how far in advancement you've come in the Christian life. You need the encouragement, the nourishment of the good news preached to you. And that is a lesson that God has for Moses and for us in this passage that we, we heard read together. In our passage today, I want you to notice a few things about the way the passage is put together. In verse 2, then again in verse 6, then again in verse 8, the beginning and the middle at the end, um, God makes this declaration. He says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And it does two things for us. First, it helps us understand the big point, the purpose, the ultimate goal of the message God has for Moses. is isn't about Moses, nor is it about Israel. It is first about God. The gospel itself is about fixing your eyes, captivating your heart, igniting your soul with delight and passion for God. God wants to know you and he wants you to know him. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that you might know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. The purpose of the gospel is that you might know God. The good news has an end in view, and that end is to give you God and to give God to you. And so the beginning and the middle and at the end of our passage, God outlines the same purposes to Moses. He repeats the assertion, I am the Lord. And then he goes, God has two things. He promises in the past, and he speaks in the future. 
So the second thing that this threefold repetition of God's name does for us, it gives us some structure to the passage. It splits it in two, each section beginning with the declaration, I am the Lord. And then the whole thing ending once more with the declaration, I am the Lord. So in verses 2 through 5, we see God looking back to the promises in the past. And then 6 through 8, we see God making a series of promises for the future. So there's promises in the past and promises in the future. First promise in the past is God reveals himself. Verse 2 survives, first of all, that God sets the foundation for his plan to save his people. He rests that plan entirely on the foundation of his faithfulness to his covenant promises in the past. If you look at verses 2 through 5, you'll see that God reveals himself and then God remembers. God reveals and God remembers. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. In the New Living, it said El Shaddai and then Yahweh, the proper name, the intimate name. And that doesn't mean that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew nothing of the divine name, the Lord in all caps, Yahweh. We know, for example, Genesis 4, 26, that in the days of Enosh, people first began to call the name of the Lord Yahweh. We know in Genesis 15, 2, that Abraham himself prayed to Yahweh. This was the name Abraham used. What God means here is that when he revealed the name Yahweh in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses, he was doing so in a new context. And he would do so in a way that would demonstrate that this is not one name among many others, but rather this is a name that captures the essence of who God is and how he shall be towards his people. And in the history of God's saving work, it's the remainder of the storyline will underline that fact that this is the name that he says, this is my intimate name, this is who I am, and I will reveal myself to you in an intimate way. So God reveals himself, and then secondly, God remembers his covenant. Verse 4, I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians held as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. God had, pro- had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land, and he has not forgotten his covenant promises. And so the salvation that will surely happen in the Exodus and all the revelation that came to Israel through Moses and all the redemptive acts of God in scriptures, each new covenant that God gives with David and the prophets, finishing in the Lord Jesus Christ, all that is given fulfillment to this covenant promise. Guys, I want you to know that there is one plan. One purpose according to which God is working to save his people across history. And that is a foundation for everything else that God says. And everything else that God does, he reveals himself and then he remembers his covenant in the past. But then God promises for the future. If you look at the second section of the passage, verses 6 through 8 begins once again with the declaration, I am the Lord. And here he turns from remembering the promises of the past to making seven promises for the future. Each of them beginning with the statement, I will. And there are seven I will statements here. The first three are all in verse six. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then the next two, verse seven, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And then the sixth and seventh are in verse eight. I will bring you into the land. I'll give it to you for a possession. So there are seven I will statements regarding how God is going to save them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. God's roadmap for salvation. And we can summarize it under four headings. Here are the four headings. God will set us free. God will buy us back. God will adopt us. And God will make us his heirs. So first, God will set us free. Verse 6. 
This is the point, that is the point of the first two I will shape it here. It says, I will bring you out from under the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. Salvation means release from bondage and liberation from captivity. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28 and following is a famous story of the transfiguration, where Jesus takes his disciples with them into the mountain, Peter, James, and John, and then there they see Jesus transform. His majesty and glory as the only redeemer, as God himself, as man, the mediator, the covenant of grace, his face before them, temporarily unveiled before their eyes. And we read, Luke tells us, with them were Moses and Elijah. And they're talking to Jesus, and Luke says about his departure, that he was surely to accomplish in Jerusalem, that he was, he was about to accomplish his departure in Jerusalem. Now that word departure is significant. It's the exact same word, Greek word, that was used for, in the Pentateuch for Exodus. What they're talking about is the cross. The language they use to describe the cross is Jesus' departure, his exodus. Here is the salvation to which the exodus story points. The whole Exodus narrative is the Old Testament paradigm and template for salvation that points to its fulfillment in Calvary, where Jesus redeemed from slavery and bondage, the bondage of sin, all who believe in him. So in Revelation 1.5, Jesus is the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And Galatians 5.1, it says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And in John 8.31, it says if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus brings liberation from slavery and bondage, and all of us want to be free. There are different kinds of freedom, aren't there? There's economic freedom, legal freedom, constitutional freedom, rights, and liberties. And there's something even more profound even than that. If this time has taught us anything, we see that we have freedom from, we can have freedom from fear, of death, from economic issues. That's what we want is freedom that transcends. The philosophers across the ages have searched for it. Aristotle said this, he who has overcome his fears is truly free. John Paul Sartre said, freedom is what we do with what, we, what is done to us. They're recognizing that freedom is more profound than something legal or economic. And the scriptures teaches us that true freedom is only to be found in one place. It is to be found in the liberation that the grace of God provides to us. Jesus can give you freedom, real and true freedom. Liberation from slavery and bondage to sin is available to us in Jesus Christ alone. God will set us free. Because for what truly holds us in bondage and captivity? For me, I believe it's fear, fear of death, of insignificance, of loneliness. Christ answers those fears by answering the human condition. We are set free by being known, by being loved, and being called to eternal purpose and relationship, by being called to so much more that even the fear of what could happen to our bodies in this physical place can be put to rest because we have eternity with him. Christ sets us free. The second aspect of salvation is also there in verse 6. God will buy us back. God will set us free one, but then God will buy us back. Verse 6 says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Freedom is still the theme, of course, but this word redeem and redemption highlights how God will make us free. This idea of redeeming is how God will make us free. He makes us free by paying a price to purchase our liberation. What he does is he, he pays the price. He redeems what was broken and lost. And here, too, the redemption of Israel in Exodus is only a faint glimmer of the brighter light that shines in Christ. In both Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14, we read the same statement. In him we have redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' true redemption, the price for your freedom is the cross of Jesus. Hebrews 9.12, speaking about 
the, the types and patterns of Old Testament sacrifice, all of them fulfilled in Jesus, says this. He offered himself, his own blood, secure eternal redemption. We were slaves, slaves to our nature, slaves to sin. We are not free. But the good news is that the price of your freedom has been paid. Jesus makes you free. He was enslaved. He was mistreated. He was crucified that our debt of sin might be canceled. And when he said it is finished on the cross, he meant it is paid in full. Your debt's wiped clean. You're free by his grace. If today you believe the gospel, God will set us free and God will buy us back. He redeems what is worthless. One of those tickets that you get at the arcade, this you know, ticket, it's worthless until you redeem it and gives it value. He redeems us. And then three, God will adopt us. And the third aspect of salvation is there in verse seven, the next two I wills. He says, verse seven, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the, under the burdens of the Egyptians. When God saves you, he gives freedom from sin's tyranny and dominion in our lives by the blood of the cross. But he does so much more. Not, does he, not just does he save you, not does he just redeem you, but he takes us and makes us his children. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. The New Testament category for this, the way the New Testament looks at it, is they call it adoption. He brings us into his family. Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus sets us free when we believe the good news. He does it by paying the price of our sin at Calvary. When we believe that gospel, we are adopted into his family. We are made children of God. John 1, to all who received, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. The Puritans said that adoption was the highest privilege of the Christian gospel. There is no higher blessing in the Christian life than the blessing of adoption. It's the crowning benefit given to every believer. We don't have to look for blessings or experiences or anything else, but there's nothing sweeter, nothing more glorious, no privilege higher than saying this, you are a child of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. And we can hear the, the awe in, in John's voice when he says in 1 John, when he says, behold what manner of love is this, what manner of love is this that we should be called the children or become the children of God. It should have been enough that Jesus just pays our penalty, wipes our slate clean, and purchases our forgiveness or freedom. That would be more than enough. It satisfies all the demands of love and grace and generosity. That wicked sinners like us might not be condemned but pardoned, that's enough. But it wasn't enough for the love of God. The love of God takes us, wretched slaves, to our own sinful passion, not worth anything, filthy rags of selfishness and pride. He takes us, and he does much more than just wash us clean, much more than just forgive our sins, much more than sets us free. He calls you beloved child, precious son, daughter. He fixes his delight upon you. He calls you by name. He sets his name, the triune name, the family name upon you. Yeah, as you guys know, my last name is you. Um, confusing. As I was teaching Hudson that his last name was you, he was confused, and rightly so. He knew the word, like, you and I, or you and I are going somewhere. Hey, you, don't do that. He didn't quite get that you was somehow our family name. And that it was pronounced the same way. He's like, I don't get this. But now how sweet it is for me to hear him say, my name is Hudson You. I love that. 
That's his identity. He is mine and I am his. He carries the name and he is my son and I adore that. That's how we are with God. We go to the one enthroned in majesty and glory, the one infinite in might and purity and power and majesty, and we can just call him Abba, Father. Behold, what manner of love is this? Take it in. Stand in awe. This is love. You could have just set us free. You could have just said, you're off death row. I paid the price. It's done. That's good enough. No, he says, you're my son and you're my daughter. We're adopted. And then finally, he makes us heirs. That's the consequence of becoming a child of God. Verse 8, I'll bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you for you as a possession. They're going to inherit the land. Canaan was a land in which their father sojourned. God promised to give it to them as their descendants. Now he's going to keep the word, his word. And the land, of course, is another picture, isn't it? It's a picture of the fullness of the gospel blessing and benefits that come to all who trust in him. If we are forgiven and set free and adopted, we stand and inherit the blessings of the promises as well. Paul puts it in Galatians 4, 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Or Romans eight seventeen. If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. That's a staggering statement. God and the Son, you are fellow heirs. We're, we're the same. We could inherit what Christ inherits. We stand to inherit him and the glory that is all his. He's done all the work. He's done all the labor. He's paid the price. He borne the penalty. But his inheritance that is his by rights is now ours. We're swept along with him. We carry his grace, his favor, his marriage now on us because of Jesus. We have an inheritance that can never spoil never fade, kept in heaven for us, First Peter says. We will one day, Matthew 5 says, we will one day inherit the earth. And Colossians says, the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Guys, one day the reality dimly pictured by the promised land, a place of their own, a place to rest, a place for promise, that place that they would give a land flow of milk and honey. That was just a picture of the overall truth of fulfillment of the promise. That there is a promised place for us, a place of our own, a place to rest, where their suffering will be over, where we will be face to face with the glorified and exalted Christ, perfect and radiant. And we'll be surrounded by the saints and surrounded by angels. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more tears, where the, the lion and the, land, or the tiger and the goat will lie together, that the sword will be beaten down to a plowshare. This promise of a future reality, future heaven, was pictured in this promised land that was given, but now our promise, our reality that is coming to us is this new promised land because we are heirs alongside Christ. Ligon Duncan says this, here in Exodus 6 is the whole gospel set before us in summary, isn't it? From his foundational blessing, forgiveness, freedom from sin's curse and condemnation, to his highest privilege, adoption into the very family of God, to its fullest outworking and realization, inheriting the world to come, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Philip Reichen puts it this way, commenting on these verses, he says, All that is required is to trust in Jesus, believing that he has turned the I wills of salvation into I have done it of the gospel. From Moses' vantage point, this was all to come. It was all, I will, I will. One day it will be true. For ours, it is all, it is finished. The work is done. 
I've done it. Trust me, Jesus says. If today you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're in the bondage to sin and death, you feel the weight of the human condition, I plead with you, run to Jesus. He is hope. He is good news. He is bondage breaker. He sets free. And today, as you're filled with the uncertainties of this world around you, as you're sitting with sinking sand, as your identity and your confidence is being shattered by all that is happening, cling to the only rock, the only truth, the promised one that's from the beginning of time till now has been promised and in the future will give us rest. Cling and run to Jesus. He sets free. But if today, if you're a Christian, and if today, like Moses, you find yourself in discouragement and depression and disillusionment, even this disappointment and despair. If you find yourself discouraged, you find yourself, I've done everything right, but it's not going right. I did what you told me to do, God, but it's not happening the way I feel like it should. Preach again to your own heart the gospel. Remember who you are and what has been done for you. Your beloved child of God, made so by the wounds of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, Fight your discouragement with the good news of the gospel of grace. Fight your discouragement. Fight your disappointment. Fight these times and your anxieties and your fear with the good news of the gospel of grace. Fill your heart with it. And like Moses then, as he went back to Egypt with it. And for you, as you approach your daily life, as you face these uncertain times, after you've preached the gospel to yourself, preach it to others and see your heart be rekindled for the glory of God. My people, I know this is uncertain times, but we need the gospel every day. We need to sink our roots deeper and deeper into it. As we do so, may our hearts be inflamed with passion for his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work God, of your spirit moving. Thank you that in the midst of discouragement and difficult times, you preached to us the gospel. Not a gospel of just the New Testament, but a gospel of your whole story, your redemptive work. God, a promise that you keep your promises. In the past, you revealed yourself and you've kept your promises. And for us now that you set us free, God, that you redeem us, God, that you adopt us, and God, that you make us heirs. God, may we live in that truth and that reality. May that be what we stand upon and go deeper into. Not in our own ability to do good. God, not in how much security or wealth we can build up. Not in everything else that we build up, popularity or esteem, or everything else that we try to build up to make ourselves seem something. But in the truth of the gospel, may we build our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.